0: go too much into this church plant stuff, you may be asking yourself, who is this guy with all the tattoos and the funny earrings standing up here? So I'm going to give you a little bit of background about who I am before we kind of unpack a little bit more here. So like I said, my name is Peter. Uh, I'm originally from a tiny native community in northern New Brunswick called Eel Ground First Nation. And uh, 10 years ago, my wife and I became Christians. We got saved. And uh, before I became a Christian, I, I lived a pretty rough life. Uh, I was mixed up with drugs. I was mixed up with uh, crime. I ran ran with some pretty unsavory characters. And uh, I made a mess of my life, guys. Like It was just, it was, it was horrible. And uh, in fact, a lot of these tattoos, well, all the tattoos that I have, they're all from before when I was a Christian. So they're kind of a reminder of what God saved me from. Not, not a comment on whether or not tattoos are sinful or anything like that. But it's just a reminder of the lifestyle I, la- I lived before. But when God got a hold of my wife and I, who just walked in, by the way, just, just, to, just to make her feel uncomfortable there. You're welcome. I love you. Um, but when God got a hold of our lives, everything changed. Uh, so we got saved actually on the same day, on July 15th, 2010. And we got baptized on the same day, a few months after that. And we got married a year to the day that we were saved on July 15th and 2011. And so for those first couple years of marriage, like everything was good. We were comfortable. I landed a decent job. I was working in uh, software and graphic design. Uh, We had two small kids soon after. Life was comfortable. But uh, life is still good right now. But I got this sense very early on that God didn't want me to stay comfortable. And so he began to put a weight on my heart to be giving more than just my Sunday mornings. And around the same time, That he was working on me internally, God as he does. He placed some godly men in my life. Guys that were my mentors, my friends, people I I love and respect to this day. And so while he was working on my heart, he had put it on their hearts to be encouraging me to pursue Christian ministry. And so I got involved with our church. We were involved with the church plant in Halifax, Nova Scotia. My wife and I were leading a community group. I was doing outreach to uh, the First Nations community in Halifax, to this nonprofit off-reserve housing organization. And we were both involved with men's and women's ministry and whatnot. But throughout all of this, I still felt God asking me to give more. I don't know if you've ever felt that. But the thing is, I mean, in my mind, with family, with church, with work, I, I, I felt like I already had a full plate. So I kind of just shrugged it off, right? I I resisted God's call at that point in my life. But God has different plans. God had different plans. And so in the middle of 2013, he just starts ramping up this pressure in my heart, in my mind, and I could go on for an hour about all the different circumstances, all the different conversations, all the different situations that came up that made it clear that God was calling me into something else. He was asking me to step into the, the next chapter that he had written for my life. And so as anyone who's walked with God with, for, for any amount of time can kind of vouch to this, so you can't resist him for very long, if at all. And so I, at this point, I really had no choice but to respond. And so you know, at this point, I have no idea what he's calling me into, so I start talking to my pastor, uh, Brad Summers. I'm not sure if some of you guys know him. He's, he's from the East Coast. He's been out here in southwest Ontario. And he suggested I check out Heritage College and Seminary. I think there's some heritage grads in here somewhere. Yes? There we go. And so he had attended Heritage back in the 90s, ages ago. <laughs> and uh, so I, I had heard from other people that this was a decent school, and so I'm checking it out online, and it's ticking all the right boxes for me. And the more I'm looking at this, the more I'm looking at like, what this situation is going to look like, I feel like God is telling me this whole time, this is where I want you to go. This is what I want you to do. And what was big was, like, it was a huge af- affirmation actually, it was when, when I talked to my wife about this, he was putting this on her heart too. And so for you married couples, I heard some amens out there, you know, husbands especially, if God puts some crazy plan in your head and you go talk to your wife and she's like, I'm on board, you know there's something there, right? So we had to, we had to respond. So, but this was going to be a massive move for us. We were living in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and he was, God, God was calling us to move here to London, Ontario. And so my wife and I, we were, we spent over a year praying about this move and what this would look like, asking God to make it clear what he was calling us, not just me, but our family into. Because ministry really does involve the whole family. And so in the fall of 2013, we started to see God just swing open doors. And on a snowy March morning, we packed our two kids, our dog, into this rusted-out 2003 Ford Focus station wagon, and we moved halfway across the country to London, Ontario. Uh, We found a ridiculously affordable home, probably not that affordable nowadays, but uh, unbeknownst to us at the time, it was just three blocks away from the church that I would later be called to pastor three years later. And so God has just blessed us so much since we moved out here. We've welcomed two more kids. Those are the ones squirming over there with Sammy and I before uh, I came up here. We got connected with Summerside Community Church, uh, where I started serving as a pastoral assistant. And since graduation, God has blessed both Samantha and I with the opportunity to serve our community with a group of brothers and sisters that I love dearly. Oh, I'm going to get choked up again. So these are dear friends of mine that, that, who love the Lord and love our neighborhood, love our community. And so Derek and I, going back to the church plant here, we're actually standing on the shoulders of some very godly men and women who have gone before us. Because the building in which we do ministry was actually home to two other churches over the past 70 years. So the first being Chelsea Baptist, that was open from 1953 to 1980. And so what you're seeing here is the original building. It's since been renovated by the next church that took over the building, which is Victory Heights. And they moved in around 1980. But sadly, Victory Heights also closed their doors about 20 years ago. And so after they closed their doors, the church building was kind of sitting there not really being used to its full potential for quite some time. And so I'm in school, I'm serving at Summerside, and I'm praying for God to make clear for me what he has planned after I graduate. And so I see this church building. It's right around the corner from my house. I'm driving by this building every single day on my way to school. And again, I just felt this burden, like God was telling me, this this building needs to be used for something in this community. And so Derek and I, we start talking to our pastors at Summerside. We start having conversations about using this church as kind of like a foothold, for Summerside to start doing ministry in the neighborhood of Chelsea Green. And church planting wasn't even part of this discussion at this point. We just wanted to have the, uh, have a, a church presence, a ministry presence in Chelsea Green. And so we began to host community groups. Uh, we organized some cleanup days. I mean, sitting, a building sitting unused for 20 years almost. And there was a lot of cleanup that had to happen. A lot of junk kind of accumulated, day outside, the brush. Uh, we held a prayer and worship night. And... It was around this time that I actually started serving as the interim chair for the Chelsea Green Neighborhood Association, so I suggested we started holding the meetings at the church. And guys, things just exploded. We had 100 people come out to our prayer and worship night. The Neighborhood Association grew from like seven people, including my wife and I, to like 27 people, all in the span of about six months. And so Pastor Devin at Summerside, he recognized what God was doing here. And so he puts it on. Our, uh, puts the idea in our heads, heads, why don't you guys plant a church? Why don't you guys start exploring what planting a church in Chelsea Green would look like? And so Derek and I, as we're making these connections with people in the neighborhood here, we come to find out that there are just loads of people still living in Chelsea Green that had a connection with one of these two churches that were there before us. You know, folks whose parents attended youth group or, or, or something there. People whose, whose, whose parents were, were married or baptized there. And we had a chance to meet the former uh, pastor. Some of you guys may know him, Don Brubaker. Yeah. And so we heard stories from him about people getting saved on their front porches in Chelsea Green as he was out in the neighborhood making connections. Sunday mornings where it was standing room only. And so Derek and I began to realize that, you know, this church served as a hub for the entire community back in the day. And when Victory Heights shut their doors, it left a huge hole in the life of the community. So God revealed two things to us here. First, we began to see this church plant in Chelsea Green as more of a mission for revival in the community and less of something that we were forging a new path on. And second, was that as we got to know people in the area, we heard time and time again, they, so many of them expressed this desire for community relationships. And so we were very intentional. About crafting the mission statement for our church when the ball started getting rolling, because we wanted to reflect what we felt our calling was into this specific neighborhood. We wanted to respond to these needs that we were hearing from our neighbors. Obviously, the greatest need for people to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, but we also felt God leading us to make this place a hub for community again creating a space for them to come and experience God, but also a place to to foster meaningful community relationships. And so our mission statement as a church is to seek the lost, to grow together in Christ, and to build our community. And so while the wording may be somewhat unique to Chelsea Green, the essence of what this mission statement says here is is it communicates that that we are serious about the Great Commission. And churches that take the Great Commission seriously will have something similar to what this is. In fact, you guys, Knollwood. I found this on your website. You have written on your web- website, Norwood seeks to be a church family of disciples that are making disciples of Jesus Christ. And you folks nailed that. A little more succinctly than we did, actually. But in essence, what you're describing here in this statement is building community, isn't it? Because I truly believe that when churches are living out the Great Commission and people are coming to a saving faith in Jesus Christ, the natural result of that is community. You are a community. And so, as I started thinking about the importance of community in the life of the church, I began to see how community really is God's imprint on us and on creation. And that's why we see people who have no connection to faith, no connection to a church, they still express this desire to be connected to community, to be known, to be loved, to be accepted. And so, this morning, what I hope to do is answer some questions about community. First, why is community important? Number two, what does community look like? And lastly, how is community built? I apologize for the little error there in your, in your bulletins. So we'll be looking at Acts 2 this morning. And I don't think you guys have pew Bibles, right? So I'll give you guys a second to get there. Acts 2, we're going to be starting in verse 42 this morning. and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. So, I was given some advice that it's generally bad form for a visiting pastor to wade into contentious social issues here, but you guys seem like a friendly bunch, so I'm going I'm to go out on a, a limb here. So I'm going to ask you guys, this is, this is serious, this is severed relationships and and, and I don't know if marriages but uh, I'm going to ask you guys, how many of you would consider yourselves to be either dog people or cat people? Both. I don't have that category in my notes but we can talk after. So personally, I know it's not that serious, I'm more of a dog person. I, I, I was raised around dogs, I wasn't raised by dogs but I was raised around dogs and so we had dogs growing up, since I was like a toddler, and if you've ever owned a dog and raised one from being a puppy, you are probably well familiarized with what they do when they're left alone for too long, right? They'll chew up your, your, your furniture, they'll chew up your shoes, they'll make a mess, they'll run amok until you get home. They call it separation anxiety. So with some dogs, it can actually be so severe that it goes beyond just a behavioral thing into actually like a physiological affliction. I recently read a story about this family that had a pet dog, and they went on vacation. And they left this dog in a kennel, and this this dog was well cared for. It was fed, uh, it it, it was taken for walks every day, they even piped in a couple hours of television for some reason. So, this is the doggy Ritz Carlton or something. So, when this family gets home, they go to pick this dog up, they're in the car on the way home, and they start to notice that this dog is shedding hair, like, more than usual. Like Every time they go to pet it, fistfuls of fur are coming out in their, in their hands. And so the father gets home, and he's in a bit of a panic. He calls the vet, and he's like, what's going on? Do I need to bring him in? The vet's like, no, 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 relax, it's okay. Just spend some time with him. Give him some love. Give him some affection. And so they do just that. They spend a couple hours playing catch, rubbing his belly, giving him treats. And sure enough, within a couple hours, the shedding, the hair falling out, stopped. And so we're going to think about this for a second. Right? This makes sense. Dogs are pack animals, right? So God has designed them in such a way that they live in community, we could say, from the moment they're born, amongst a litter of other pups, to the moment that they die. And when they're separated from that community, they suffer. And let's think about that, because if a dog will completely fall apart after just one week of being separated from its family, again, we could say cut off from its community, how much more do we as human beings, how much more of a negative impact does it have on us when we are separated from community? When we're isolated, when we're cut off from human contact. And I'm not just talking about feelings or emotions here. It's its not just a psychological issue. This is a legit medical issue. And what's interesting is that our culture, we kind of have ways of talking around this, don't we? For example, like if, a, if, a, if there's a situation where one spouse dies and then the widow soon passes afterwards... You'll often hear people say things, well, they must have died of loneliness. And while it may seem kind of like a romantic way of, 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 of talking about this, this situation, this sad situation, there are medical studies coming out now that show that this is actually quite true. There's studies that show that living in isolation, being cut off from community can increase your risk of death from 25% to up to 60%, depending on the, on, on the, on the studies you look at. Everything from our psychological health to our our immune systems is negatively affected when we are cut off from human contact. We're cut off from community. And this is a growing problem in our society, in our modern society. More and more of us are living cut off from meaningful relationships in our lives. We spend more time interacting with people through our devices and actually having conversations face to face. And so a growing number of healthcare professionals, they're starting to sound the alarm, saying that people living in isolation from other people, or again, we could say people being cut off from meaningful community relationships, it's the next big public health crisis. They're saying it's even worse than obesity and substance abuse. That's insane. But I think it points to something so intrinsically important about community. Community. So, we're going to look at this, this first question here. Why is community important? And why should we as churches consider community a priority? Well, first, we can start by pointing to a massive amount of evidence in God's word that encourages us to be loving and involved with the people in our communities. The Apostle Paul, in 1 Corinthians 10, 24, says that each of us should seek not our own good, but the good of our neighbors. These are people in our community. Again, Paul writes in the book of Romans, let each of us build up our neighbor for his good, to build him up. Jesus, in Mark twelve thirty one, says that the two greatest commandments are, first, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and the second part was to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus is, is saying here that there's no greater commandments than these two. In fact, he's quoting word for word, Leviticus 19. He says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So to begin here, in answering this question, we can see that God saw fit to communicate to us in his word that there's something important about being connected to people in community. To be demonstrating love and concern for their well-being. To be building them up. Jesus even goes so far as to say this is one of the two greatest commandments. So we need to be paying attention to this. In fact, God shows us from the very beginning that community is a good thing. In Genesis 2, we see God, after having spent six previous days speaking everything into creation, he looks down at Adam by himself in the garden, he says, it is not good that the man should be alone. So he creates Eve. And he establishes the very first human community in creation. See, this wasn't an afterthought for God, though. I believe it was always God's intention for us to live in community. Because we can go even further back than the Garden of Eden in exploring this question of why community is important. Because the reality is that community existed before creation. Before the Spirit was hovering over the waters of the deep, before God spoke the words, Let there be light. See, our God, the creator of everything, was eternally existing in community within himself before creation was ever spoken into existence. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Each three distinct persons. Each person fully God, eternally existing as one God in community. We call this the doctrine of the Trinity. And while it may be a bit harder, one of the harder aspects of of God for us to fully wrap our heads around, people have been wrestling with this for thousands of years, what we can glean from this is that community isn't just something God had planned for us here in creation. Community Community in creation is an overflow. It's an outpouring of the perfect community God experiences within himself. With the fruits of the Spirit, we find discussed in Scripture, are expressed and shared perfectly among the three persons in this community. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, eternally giving to and receiving from each other love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. See, establishing community in creation was just one of the ways God expresses his nature to us. It's one of the ways he tells us something about himself. And so we see community hardwired into creation, into us, because community reflects the creator. And so within God's creation, there's nothing that reflects him more than us. Genesis one twenty six. God says, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. See, God, God's made us as his image bearers, both men and women. Which is why God said it was not good for man to exist alone because God does not exist alone, but exists in perfect community. And so in creating Eve, God was just completing the task that he set out to do. To create mankind in his image. Man and woman. Equal co-image bearers of God. Living in perfect community at the beginning. With each other and with their creator. We are created for community, brothers and sisters. From the very beginning, God has created us for community. It's something that is hardwired into us because we are made in his image. This is why community is important. Because it's like God's fingerprint on us. It tells us something about God. And as his image bearers in creation, we are made to reflect his nature out into the world. And that is why churches should consider community a priority. Because on a very deep and profoundly spiritual level, people sense this longing to live in perfect community. The community that we once experienced at the beginning, in the garden. People feel that hole in their hearts. But something went wrong. And in Genesis 3, we see our first father and mother who were living in perfect community with each other, with God. They turned their backs on all of it. And they disobeyed the one that gave them life. The one who created perfect community for them. And when they disobeyed, sin and death and destruction entered the world. And instead of their hearts being pointed outwards towards each other and towards God, they were pointed inwards, so in their own desires, their thinking became corrupt. Those perfect fruits of the Spirit were replaced with rotten fruits of selfishness and individualism and greed. Instead of being community-focused, our first father and mother became focused on self. And the perfect community they once experienced at the beginning was lost because of sin. And sadly, we still feel that reverberation of sin echoing down into our lives today, don't we? We can see it in the world around us, death, destruction, suffering. We can see it in our own hearts as we struggle with selfishness, with individualism, with greed. Each and one of us, each and every one of us is capable of unimaginable sin, brothers and sisters. But God didn't give up on us. And so he set in motion a rescue plan to restore his perfect community, to rescue his image bearers, you and I, and to make us part of that first community once again. And he did it through his son, Jesus. And so Jesus, being a member of this eternal community of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, he willingly gave his life up for us because he knew it was the will of the Father to reestablish that perfect community. And when he died on that cross to pay the penalty that we deserved for our sins, his blood washes us clean of the rottenness of sin and allows us to re-enter the community of God. See, God's plan has always been, always been to rescue us from our sin, to return us to that perfect community, and he did it through Jesus. But we only experience that perfect community in part here, in the here and now. Like Paul says, we look through a mirror dimly. But there will be a time when we experience that perfect fellowship with each other and with our creator once again. A future, a hope that we hold on to where we will be living in perfect community for eternity with our God. This is another reason why community is important, brothers and sisters, because it is an integral part of God's plan. Community existed before creation. God established community for us at the beginning in creation. And despite the fact that our sin and selfishness broke that original community, God has a plan to restore all of it through Jesus Christ in the future. Praise God. But like I said, we live in the here and the now. We live in this present age and we can look out in the world and we see that the community in which we live, our church communities, our community at large, they're not how they were in the beginning. Which leads us to our next question. What does community look like? We could probably phrase this as, what does community look like in here and now while we wait for Jesus to return? So that's where we get into today's passage. Long introduction, I know. Because we need to remember that when we look at the acts of the apostles here and the account of how they began to build community after Jesus' ascension into heaven, what we are seeing is the people who were the closest to Jesus. And I would argue that we should be paying close attention to how they do community. Agreed? Because they learned firsthand how Jesus did community. And so it's in our best interest to take notice. So, when we read through this account in Acts, we see what a community, is ma- uh, what a community made up of a people who lived close to Jesus actually looked like. And there's two parts to this. First, we catch a glimpse of the culture of this community and how it was shaped by a devotion to certain elements. And then we see how that culture had an impact on the spiritual growth of the community members. And we're going to start here in terms of what the culture looked, at, looked like. Verse 42, again. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread and prayers. And so, immediately here we see some of these elements that categorized, or characterized, rather, this early church community. You good? Okay. I go freestyle sometimes. I probably should have given you a heads up. So, immediately we see some of the elements that characterized this early church community. We see the culture of this community and there's a word here that we need to pay attention to devoted they were devoted they were committed to they held tightly to the elements of culture that distinguished them from other communities first they were devoted to the apostles teachings we could say they were they were devoted to God's word this was a community uh, this was the community members gathering together to unpack the teachings of Jesus the words of God himself showing how salvation is only attainable through Jesus Christ they submitted themselves to these teachings. Second, they devoted themselves to spending time with one another in fellowship. This wasn't just once a week for an hour and change. The Greek word here is koinonia, and it speaks like an intimacy of doing life on life with other believers, living in community, developing meaningful relationships with each other. This is fellowship in the deepest sense of the word, brothers and sisters actually being in each other's lives, carrying each other's burdens, celebrating with one another, mourning with one another, drawing near to one another, and expressing those fruits that we talked about earlier. It says here that they were also devoted to celebrating the Lord's Supper, something that we did here today, this morning. This wasn't just sharing a meal once in a while, which they would have done as well. This was a regular observance of the Lord's Supper amongst the believers. We're calling to mind and celebrating the sacrifice Christ made at the cross on their behalf, on our behalf, freeing us from the captivity of sin, something we did today. And lastly, they devoted themselves to praying with and for one another. So all of what we're seeing here And this first verse is the culture of a community shaped by their devotion to understanding and submitting to God's word, fellowship to one another, celebrating what Christ had accomplished at the cross, and prayer. And when we break it down into these four elements, community actually starts to look kind of simple, doesn't it? Not a lot to it. And what we see next is the very real impact of living in a community like this has on the spiritual growth of community members. Look at Verse 43. They were in awe at the wonders and signs that were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and their belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Now we're going to stop here for a second because... Some folks will take this passage completely out of context and say, well, if you look, look, the early church was was practicing some form of primitive communism here. It's just not the case. Because it wasn't something that was forced on the community members from the top down. And that's important to note, because this love and this generosity was willingly expressed by members of the community to their brothers and sisters. Their, Their generosity didn't keep score here. It wasn't bound by distinctions of class or race. It wasn't a box for them to tick. Nor was it a means by which they thought they could earn favor with God. It was evidence of their spiritual growth and maturity. Spiritual growth that was fostered and nourished and encouraged as they led lives immersed in the culture of this community. So what we see is this spiritual growth It actually leads to the community itself growing. Which brings us to our last question here. How is community built? Because when we look at verse 47 here, we actually begin to see how this community was built. It says that they were praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. And so to get a bit more context here, we're going to skip back, verse 41. Now this is right after Peter preaches the very first Christian sermon at Pentecost. And up until this point, the group of believers in Jerusalem numbered about 120. But after Peter preaches his sermon, proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah, they see this incredible response from the crowds. The Holy Spirit convicts the people in the crowds of the truth that Jesus is the Christ and we read here in 41 so those who received Peter's word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls the church exploded from 120 to 3,000 people so when we read verse 46 that they were gathered in each other's homes living out this culture of this living out the culture of this community what are we really looking at here? Well, there's a historian named Vincent Brannock who wrote wrote about uh, what this community may have looked like. And so based on his research on archaeological evidence, he discovered that the average home in Jerusalem could fit maybe 20 to 30 people. So do the math. What are we looking at here? We're looking at smaller groups from this larger community spread throughout all the corners of Jerusalem gathering together in their homes to dig into God's word to do life together, to celebrate the Lord's Supper and to pray with and for one another. And as we see in verse 47, they were having an impact on the community at large because those outside the early church community, the unbelieving Jews and the pagans that lived in this city. Verse 47, take a look here. It says they were praising God and having favor with all people. This would have been their neighbors that they were praying for. This would have been their neighbors that they were loving on. This would have been the neighbors that they were serving, the people they interacted with in the marketplace as they went to their places of work, as they went about their daily lives. They were intentionally engaging in meaningful relationships with the people in their community, the people that they met in their everyday lives. And our churches today, 2,000 years later, we're called to have this same impact in our communities, brothers and sisters, Some churches put this into practice through community groups or discipleship groups. The the name really isn't important. It's the impact these groups have on the community at large. That's what's important. Because as we followers of Jesus Christ, as we come into contact with unbelievers and we pour those fruits of the Spirit into their lives, as we develop meaningful relationships with these folks and come to experience, they come to experience just a taste of of that community of God that existed at the beginning, it speaks to something deep within them. Because like each one of us, they too, as image bearers of God, they were created for life in community. And so this resonates with them. And so brothers and sisters, when we talk about how community is built, we need to take note of what scripture doesn't say here. Because it doesn't say that it was built by cloistering ourselves away from the world. We're called to engage with the world, to challenge it, to reflect the love and the mercy and the the forgiveness of Jesus Christ into the community at large. Scripture doesn't say here that community was built by having the nicest building or the best worship. These folks were meeting in their homes They were out in the community using the resources that God had given them, their money, their time, their energy to engage the community at large in their everyday lives. I think most importantly, this early church community didn't grow because they compromised some aspect of the gospel. In fact, it says here that they were openly praising God and winning the favor of all people. So as, as these folks engaged with their community, they didn't pull any punches when it came to their faith. They were bold. They were unashamed. They didn't hide their intentions. They didn't pull a bait and switch. They were boldly proclaiming that the foundation for everything they did was their faith in Jesus Christ. See, this early church community knew full well who saved them. They knew full well who sustained them who empowered them to, to, to carry out this mission to win lost souls for Jesus. And they gladly gave him every last ounce of glory. And so in answering this last question, when we read the, the rest of verse 47 here, we see who it was who was building this community. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. See, what we're seeing here is this early church community being built on the personal witness of how God had saved these people through his son Jesus and as a result of the love and the mercy and the forgiveness they received, they poured it out into the lives of people in the community, believers and unbelievers. And so God used them to build a community that reflected his glory, his mercy and forgiveness here in creation, the church. And he did it day by day believer by believer and he continues to do it today And so brothers and sisters as we read about this early community in the book of acts we need to be reminding ourselves of these four elements of culture that god has laid out for us the distinguishing marks of the community that he is building the church a devotion to god's word a devotion to fellowship true fellowship actually being in each other's lives brothers and sisters A devotion to celebrating Christ's sacrifice on the cross, the Lord's Supper. And a devotion to prayer, to God, for, with one another. Because if we are seeking to build a community based on anything other than these four elements, what are we really building? What are we inviting the community at large in to experience? If we're focused solely on delivering social programs and events, how are we any different from the, the hundreds of secular organizations that exist in our community? How are we intentionally engaging with people? How are we building meaningful relationships with the people we encounter in our community? How are we reflecting the community of God into the lives of these people that we meet? Each of one, each one of us, bears the responsibility. Church events and programs that address social needs are not bad things in and of themselves. Don't get me wrong. But as God brings people through our doors, as we engage with people in our community, as we're out in our community, what makes us different, brothers and sisters? What makes us different? Paul writes in Colossians that we are to walk in wisdom towards outsiders. Making the best use of the time. And so as we develop these relationships with the people in our community and God presents us with an opportunity to tell them about Jesus, are we being bold with our faith? Are we ready to give a reason for the hope that we have in our hearts? Are we seeking to really know the needs and desires and struggles of the people that God puts on our path? Are we we equipping ourselves and each other to be able to know how to answer each person with the truth of the gospel? Because if we are truly living out the Great Commission to go forth and to make disciples, we're going to come into contact with people that look and think and act quite differently from ourselves. But we need to be ready to roll up our sleeves and deal with the messiness of their lives, brothers and sisters. Being ever mindful of the fact that each one of us sitting in this room today, including myself, Before we came to faith in Christ, we were once dead in our sins. We were once enemies of God, each and every one of us. But God made a way for us through his Son, Jesus the Christ, to redeem and restore us into this perfect community of God that our first father and mother experienced at the very beginning, but was lost because of sin. A community that has existed before creation, a community that awaits each and every one of us at the end of this age. Let's pray, brothers and sisters. Father, we praise you for the gift of community, Lord. We thank you for calling each and every one of us into this mission to build a community a community that reflects not just your kingdom, but you, Lord. And so we ask you to continue to empower your church to boldly engage and challenge the world outside these four walls, we call, I know you were calling each church to do exactly that, Lord. So protect us, Lord, as we step out in faith to carry your mission. As we wait for the return of your Son, uh, waiting to be ushered into an eternity spent in community with you. And we pray this all in Jesus' holy and righteous name. Amen.
1: I hope you've been encouraged and reminded of the gospel of Jesus Christ and convicted. I was just down at a conference all week. I was hit with a two by four, probably more like a four by four, uh, and reminded of these very things. And here I am again, the importance of being a community that God has called us to be. May we be that as a church. And as we close off our service, as the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly Mm. than all that we ask or think. Think about that. Mm. Anything we can think, he can do more Mm -hmm. according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church here at Knollwood, at Chelsea Green, and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let me just quickly pray for Chelsea Green. (laughs) Father God, I just thank you for what you are doing in and through uh, Chelsea Green community church, Lord. May you use them in a mighty way to expand your kingdom here in London and even throughout the whole world, Lord. I pray that as uh, brothers and sisters in Christ that we can come alongside of them and encourage them and pray for them as well and spur them on to accomplish the mission that you have given them. May you be glorified. Amen. Amen. Go in peace.